Welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, a podcast where we speak with Merida College faculty members on important issues that impact our campus or impact our world. I'm your host, Tom Perry, and today we are pleased to welcome Greg Delamister, Professor of Economics. Dr. Delamister, who has worked at the college since 1986, has conducted research on the growth of Major League Baseball player salaries and how they are driven by the growth of revenues. Our plan was to talk about the ninth work stoppage in Major League Baseball history that was mainly about money. Thankfully, the owners and players agreed to get back to work. The main points of contention centered around free agency, the luxury tax, salary arbitration, competitive integrity, minimum salaries, and service time manipulation. Greg, thank you for joining us today to talk about the economics of baseball. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Well, as I mentioned, there have been nine times that either the players have gone on strike or the owners have locked out the players. Can you explain to us why a league that is so profitable and everybody seems to be making a lot of money continues to do this occasionally? Well, this is the first work stoppage in over 20 years, actually. Uh, The last stoppage was 94-95, in which the World Series was canceled in 94. And and, uh, for the local folks here, that was the year the Indians, I think, had a pretty good team and had a good chance of making it to the World Series. But the players went on strike in in August of uh, 94, right in the sort of the heart of the season. Um, Why do they do this? I mean... Uh, this is, you know, a perennial issue. There's lots of money at stake. And it's a, it's a pie that uh, these two sides are trying to figure out, the, you know, sort of a, the best way to divide it up. Uh, bef- before, if you go back before the World Series was canceled, every collective bargaining agreement from 1972 up to 1995, there was a strike or a lockout. I mean, so labor tensions were pretty high back then. After the World Series was canceled, you know, so I think baseball came to its senses, and there's been peace. I mean, there, we haven't had any lockouts since 95, any strike at all either. Um, it's the money. Um, you know, in the early 70s, we saw the advent of free agency, uh, arbitration enter the picture, and so there were some institutional changes that sort of shook things up, uh, and, and, you know, the, I guess they agreed uh, after that cancellation of the World Series to, you know, sort of uh, lock in and settle down. Uh, TV packages, broadcast deals have been growing. And so the, the pool of money available to the players and the owners has been growing at such a rate that I think it's made everybody happy and uh, satisfied. Uh, until the last few years, I mean, I think player salaries have sort of plateaued uh, based on the data I've seen, and that has sort of uh, got the players' union and players themselves um, to start questioning, are they getting their fair share? Well, that brings us to a, a, another point here. I mean, Major League Baseball Players Association is if not one of the strongest unions that's probably ever been around. I mean, they when they go to battle, they they stick together. They they will fight. Um, and you just mentioned that you know they probably noticed this and they did it again. They seem to be pretty unified. Can you can you talk about just? I mean, again, it's probably advantageous that these are wealthy individuals, anyways. So there's a the ability to sit out for some time, but just the ability to stay so together through uh, through these moments. You know, have you? I don't know if that's something you could talk comfortably about, but how they've been able to do that. Well, I noticed in this latest agreement, the Players' Executive Committee, they actually voted unanimously against the uh, proposal that the owners 
and put forward. It was the players themselves that said, okay, we're going to go ahead and vote in favor of this anyway. So uh, maybe the leadership was trying to send a message, but the, the, the rank and file, uh, they didn't you know, follow suit in that mm -hmm. sense. Um, yeah, that, that, that's um, an interesting question. Uh, you know, the, the Major League Baseball has what's known as an exemption, an antitrust exemption, and that provides a certain amount of protection for that particular industry compared to other sports leagues. NFL, NBA, the NHL, they do not have this, this odd antitrust exemption. And so anytime um, one of those players' associations wants to challenge a certain aspect of the collective bargaining agreement, they have to decertify the union and then file a lawsuit because our antitrust laws, you, uh, a, a labor union, if it's a collectively bargained agreement, you cannot uh, uh, appeal to the antitrust statute as a justification for changing it. So the, the NFL, for example, in 1987, they went on strike. Um, um, and they had to decertify, break up the union, and then file an antitrust suit. So that, that's going to change, you know, have an impact on how effective the Players Association is. Baseball, they don't have to worry about that. So that provides a, a bit more uh, stability to their, to their structure. I think for people who are listening would love to know where you got this interest. I mean, obviously as an economist, but where you got the interest in looking at the economics of baseball? When did this become something that really interests you and why? Well, I've always been a baseball fan. I played baseball, you know, growing up. And uh, in graduate school, my, my dissertation research was on the impact of final offer arbitration, which is the system that Major League Baseball uses to sort of settle disputes for... Uh, players between three and six years, right before free agency. Okay. Uh, baseball players can gain free agency after their sixth year of service. So for younger players um, you know, who are under the, what's known as the reserve clause, uh, they can only bargain with the team that owns their rights, uh, that put them at a disadvantage when it comes to compensation. So arbitration was developed to sort of ameliorate that aspect of the negotiation. And so um, in a final offer arbitration system, the player and the owners submit one last final offer, and a panel of independent arbitrators must select one or the other, nothing in between. And so that idea of selecting between perhaps extreme offers is supposed to get the two sides to come together to, you know, in order to avoid this, uh, this uh, risky outcome. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's sort of my origin there. Okay. Um, and, and we've talked a little bit about some of the newer issues. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, to me, it always goes back to money. So, you know, that, I mean, who's got more and who's making more and should we be making more? But if you had a chance to sort of dive into some of the newer issues, obviously this idea of minimum salaries, you know, and I always think of, of teams like the Pirates who just, uh, you know, kind of have a, a, a 
their overall salary being at, you know sometimes lower than what some one player might make on another team. But I think that's for that competitive advantage that we've talked about, wanting everybody to sort of do that. You know, obviously the other one's the service time manipulation, mm-hmm. where they might wait to bring a player up so they don't start that service time. Just I didn't know if you've had a chance to dive into sure. that and see how. How much that impacts the economics of baseball, and why this was so important this time? Well, th- this seems to be the you know the big issue for the players' association this time around was the salaries of younger players. Um, free agency, they didn't touch that this time around. It's still six years. Uh, arbitration, they really didn't touch that either. Uh, so it's the players that aren't quite eligible for arbitration. These young players, rookies, second year, third year. Uh, that's what uh, this uh, was sort of targeted at. And so the minimum salary has been increased. It was uh, like 570000 last year. Now it's 700000 And it's scheduled to go up over the course of this collective bargaining agreement. Um, 700000 for the rookies. Um, the, the average salary in the Major League Baseball is just over $4 million. Of course, that's affected by, you know, some of the big talent, you know, uh, the median sort of right there smack in the middle is like a million dollars. Okay, that's the typical salary for a Major League Baseball player. Um, so the minimum salary and then a bonus pool was set aside uh, for, like, if you're a rookie of the year or if you win the MVP as a rookie or a second-year player, you know, you're going to get bonuses. The Major League Baseball has set aside, I think it's $50 million to dish out to any of these award winners, or uh, they've also set up this uh, sort of this uh, data analytics formula that's going to allocate some of this bonus pool based on stats, you know, whatever, you know, like the war, you know, your wins above replacement uh, variables there. So a lot of the focus was on the younger players this time around, I think. So we've talked a lot about the economic impact, obviously, in the game and in whether it be players, whether it be owners, that kind of stuff. But there's also an economic impact when you have a work stoppage to those communities. You know, whether it be, uh, I, I think even more with spring training, you know, uh, as someone who grew up in Florida and spring training was, you know, these players would come down and you got the tourism that came and stuff like that. You know, have you ever thought or talked about the impact of when something like this happens, what that does to, to, to the economics of those communities of, of just lost, you know, uh, uh, you know, dollars coming in because people would have been there spending money? Yeah. This is a controversial topic. Uh, sports economists, when they look at the economic impact of a franchise on a city uh, or you know, building a new uh, sport facility, um, most of the research indicates that there's not a whole lot of impact. Because what tends to happen is there's, there's substitution effects, what we call substitution effects. So if you go to a sports game, Okay, and buy a ticket, buy some popcorn and beer and whatnot. Uh, that's money that you might have spent at the local theater okay, or going to a rock concert. So if you don't spend the money there, okay, the money just shifted around. So you know, that's the question that you have to look at in any of these economic impact studies is how much of the money is merely shifted around. What you really want to measure is sort of new money coming in to the community that otherwise wouldn't be there. Um, and so that, that sort of um, mutes any of the economic impact. So generally, sports e- economists uh, have not been able to find a huge impact of that. So there will clearly be, you know, identified 
restaurants or folks, you know, with the ushers that work at the stadiums, they're going to be impacted. Uh, yeah, so no doubt about that. Uh, but for the greater community, not so much. Well, now you can see why I like talking to Greg Delamister. He, uh, he, he puts me in my place and makes sure I understand what's going on, but I got to imagine students uh, really enjoy the class too. So that's why, uh, taking your class. So that's why my next, my last question is, you know, I'm sure you like to incorporate this kind of stuff into your class. I mean, it makes it more real when they're hearing it. Can you just talk about how you do it? How do you bring in this baseball and economics in just to the classroom? And again, how the students sort of respond? I got to imagine that's where they get a little bit more excited and fired up to talk about things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tell my, my students, I teach a class called Econ 340 Sports Economics. And I tell them this is an econ class. You know, I love sports. We'll talk about sports. You know, I mean, we, there's lots of uh, sports is a great laboratory for economics. There's, I mean, think about it. there's there's measurements on salary and and productivity statistics. I mean, it's just you know rich with uh, uh, examples and opportunities to explore economic theory. And so all this stuff, yeah, I'm going to be working this into my lectures. Um, you know, talking about the competitive balance tax. You know. Uh, that was another big issue in, in the negotiation. The players wanted the threshold to be increased so that it essentially enables the teams to spend more on players. Uh, some of the owners didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. but um, um, So, yeah, there's, this is just plenty of uh, rich data that we can use to talk about economics. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Faculty Chronicles, and thank you to Dr. Delamister for t uh, talking baseball and economics with us. If you would like to learn more about Marietta College, please visit www.marietta.edu.